Isn't it good to be together? Yeah? Even though we're wearing masks, I can tell if some of you are smiling by your squinty eyes. Some of your eyes disappear. My face tends to swallow my eyes. Matt, you got a sword coming, buddy. <laughs> well, welcome. We're glad that you're here this morning. And for those of you that are home, just welcome. Um, if you're worshiping with us live stream, uh, we are, after 15 weeks, jumping back into Matthew. Come on, you guys. Good news, right? So we, we took a little bit of a break, and we've been, I think, um, prudently walking through some psalms that, man, I love going through the Psalms with you while we were apart and during just the interesting difficulty of the time that we were in. Um, And we took a break from Matthew, but we are back into the Sermon on the Mount. So if you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to address verses 38 to 42. And the reason we're doing that is because I'm going on vacation next week, and next week Mike is going to address the previous passage. But we're gonna, so we're going to jump ahead a little bit. We'll be a little bit out of order. But we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42. And we're going to read that in a second. But it's been a little bit since we've been in this, since we've been in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Tumultuous? Tumultuous? Why can't I say that right now? Polarized, aggressive, Difficult would be some words that would describe our world right now. Am I right? I mean, this has been, as many times have been, listen, we're not, this is not unique, a very uncomfortable time, a polarizing time. There's been a lot of unrest. And I think it's been interesting. I know for me, um, has driven me to a place of, and I hope for you, introspection a little bit. Like, all right, where's my heart in the midst of this? How, how can I be faithful as a Christian right now? I just want to be faithful. I want to be faithful to the Scriptures. I want to be faithful to my Lord who demonstrated faithfulness in the most remarkable way. I want to show mercy. I want to show, uh, I want to show, I want to be passionate about justice. I want to love the things that God loves. And so I've spent some time just thinking about what do I do? How do I respond? What do I say? And it's a difficult time. Haymakers on social media, Facebook. If you don't say something, silence is violence. If you say something, you better say the right thing or the right way. There's reason for prudence, for, for taking care, for, for being passionate and loving the things that God loves, for pursuing the right thing and at the same time hating things that God hates. And, and so I think all of us have been thrust into, as Christians, what, what is the posture of our heart supposed to be? Apart from size, apart from policy, apart from, from uh, the details of how we walk this thing out and how we are faithful, what is the posture of our heart supposed to be? How are we supposed to feel? What are we supposed to respond like? Anybody?
anybody else been thinking these things with me? Man, there's no better study in relationship to that than the Sermon on the Mount. This is timely. Man, as we walk through this as a church, and we're kind of in the middle of it, or more towards the end of it, maybe scramble back and and go to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 and just begin to study. What did Jesus say? The reality is that the Sermon on the Mount, we find, is is the most in-depth exposition of the law of God anywhere in the New Testament. This is Jesus' take on the law of God. And and what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is is He's explaining really how God feels about the law. And it's completely counterintuitive to what the rabbis and the teachers had been teaching all along. So Jesus is coming in and He's dropping bombs. He's like, this is what the law really says. This is what it's really talking about. And here's what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. is Jesus says in verse 17, I didn't come to destroy the law, to abolish the law. What does he say? I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill it. So we're learning something about the law. And as Christians, I think we struggle with the reality of what is the law of God? How does the Old Testament explain to the New Testament? What's the reality of the law of God as we delight in it in the Psalms and as we're supposed to love it in relationship to the gospel and how we're supposed to live today? And Jesus really ties these things in together because there is a tendency towards, I'm going to throw out a word, antinomianism in our culture. It's anti-lawism. This idea that we're in the gospel and, and so we're in the New Testament, and that Old Testament stuff is done away with, and we're all done with that wrathful, difficult God stuff. We're into the grace, gospel, New Testament. And there's this idea of what the law is all about that really is a total misnomer. And Jesus comes in on the Sermon of the Mount, and he's like, listen, I am not abolishing the law. I'm coming to fulfill it. I'm coming, I'm coming to give you an opportunity to live into it in a different kind of way. And I'm going to explain to you what it really means. He says, he actually says in verse 17, 18, the beginning of Matthew 5, 17, 18, that don't even think about this idea that I'm coming to destroy the law. It's unthinkable. It's not what I'm doing. I'm not tearing it down. I'm teaching what it's really about, and I'm here to fulfill it. And he launches into this sermon about our hearts and about our posture and about what the law really means to a Christian. What do we see? We see the reality that the law is is designed to drive us, <coughs> excuse me, it's designed to drive us to the cross, right? You see Paul describe this as, as a plumb line, as a picture, as, you know, you don't really know you're crooked until you see what's straight, and you see the reality of the law and recognize your need for Christ. Oh my goodness, as I look at the Ten Commandments, as I look at the law, as I look at how it's declared, I recognize that I desperately fall short of it, that I'm totally bent, that I'm in desperate need of God's mercy, and it drives me to the cross, and it brings me to a place where I realize my need for the gospel and receive Christ, right? Amen? And as we prayed in the prayer of confession, we are free. We're free. And, and God has, has declared us not guilty, not because of our works, but because of what Jesus has done. That's all true. Amen? But here's what's also true. Is in Christ, we now see the law is what pleases God and is in 
faith, we respond to his mercy, and we live out a life that begins to please God more and more. Amen? The posture of our heart, the reality of our life, the way that we begin to live and treat each other isn't an abolishment of the law. We're forgiven and we're given grace and mercy, not of our own works. We can't boast about it. God did it for us. And now, out of gratefulness and worship to a God who saved us, we begin to live a life that is pleasing to God in fulfillment of this law that pleases Him. Amen? And that's what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew chapter 5. It's important we think about it the right way. We're not anti-law. Psalm 119 says, I love the law of the Lord. I delight in it. We're pursuing a life that pleases God in the grace of God to be neighbors. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42, is one of the toughest passages in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the beginning tenets of the catechism that I'm going through with my kids is that we are not our own, right? God owns us. He's redeemed us. He's purchased us. We are not our own. We just sung, Jesus, Jesus. How I trust you. Well, guess what? Matthew 5, 38 through 42 is going to give you that opportunity. You get a chance to trust God in some of the most difficult situations of your life. So let's read it together. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Word of the Lord, amen? Is that a hesitant amen? Amen? Let's pray. God, speak to us through your word. Illuminate us through our hearts. Change us. That's our, that's our cry this morning. Change me. Change me through your word. Help me to see things through your eyes. And thank you that you've revealed yourself to us in the scripture. You delight in your law. So here's Jesus declaring really a new kind of kingdom. There was a guy in World War II, and I think Bernie talked about this, but I want to talk about it again because it's so effective. There was a guy in World War II, his name was Abraham Wald. He was a statistician. And the Royal British Air Force hired him in World War II to do a study for them. They wanted Abraham to to do the stats on where all of their planes were getting hit with bullets and flak and everything else that was being shot at them. So they're, they're, they're sending raids and airplanes to, to bomb and to fight. And when the planes come back, Abraham Wall began to do a massive statistical study on where the planes were being hit. And so he did that. He looked at all the planes that came back. He looked at where all of them were hit. He put together a graph and a statistical study that said, here is all the areas 
as they begin to think of how are we going to arm the planes? Where are we going to put armor? Where are we going to put special metal and armor on our planes? They're going to base that decision on the statistical analysis of Waldorf. And so they get all of it together. He compiles all the information, and they come to him, and they said, Abraham, what do you want to do? And this is what he said to him. I want you to put all the armor for the planes on the area where they weren't hit. And they're like, what? You know, maybe we hired the wrong guy here. But no, listen to me. I want you to build the armor for the planes on all the area that my statistical analysis shows the planes are not being hit. And they said, why? He said, because these are the planes that made it back. What I was able to study is where all of these planes got shot and still safely made it home. All the other planes I didn't get to study went down, right? So those are the spots that we need to build the armor for the planes, is all the areas where I show it didn't get hit. Totally counterintuitive. Am I right? I mean, totally upside-down thinking. And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Jesus really flips everything on its head. He really makes things counterintuitive sometimes. This really played out in my career over the years as a prosecutor. One of the things I appreciated most um, about the detectives that I worked with were, were guys that um, could get confessions. I worked tough cases, a lot of child abuse cases, a lot of homicide cases where you didn't want to put the weight of the case on the word of a child. And so you really wanted, you know, obviously as a prosecutor, as an attorney, when you're going to court, you, you want a confession. I want to get the guy to say what happened. And there was a couple of detectives I worked with that were just brilliant. I had a case that was uh, incredibly tragic, and I, I got a call, and I went down to the police station, and, uh, and there was a missing child, and, you know, the end of the story is tragic because the child was killed by her father, but um, we had apprehended the suspect, and the suspect was at the police station, and it pulled out in February, a child very young, 23 months, and, and we're, we're, we're saying, we gotta, we gotta, it's, everybody's on high here. Everybody's on their game. Everybody realizes the stakes are as high as they ever been. And I'm at the police station, and uh, the suspect comes in, and <clears throat> smells like a fire, and he's been out in February, and we're really nervous, we're really concerned, and they put him in the room, and two detectives walk in, two second detectives, phenomenal guys. They go into the room, and they begin to question him. And they begin to question him in the exact way that I wanted to question him. I sat in an adjacent room, closed-circuit TV, and I'm watching the interview, and in my heart, I'm cheering, because the detectives are going at him hard. Not physically, but verbally. We want to know where the baby is. Where's the kid? Tell us where she is. Where did you, what did you do? And he's getting his back up, and he's lying, and it's aggressive, and, and, it's, and it's fighting because we're really concerned. Sitting in the adjacent room, and I'm praying. praying that he would tell us. I'm praying because in 2009, I had a case where a child went missing, and I had a box sitting in my office with a picture on it for years, and we never found it. And I'm thinking, my God, my God, don't let this happen again. we gotta fi- we got to find out what happened here. I don't know if I can have two boxes in my office where we don't know what happened. So I'm praying. 
They go at him for a couple of hours, and he's getting his back up, and he is not, he's lying to them, clearly lying to them. They, we walk, they come out of the room, the chief priest and the lieutenant in charge of the case said, we're going to make a change. And two other detectives went walking into the room. Young guy, sharp, one of my closest friends now, good looking, sharp guy, super smart, young detective, and another female detective who's brilliant. And they walk into the room, and my friend Mark sits down in front of the suspect, and he says, tell me a little bit about what you like to do. I'm jumping out of my skin, folks. I'm sitting in the room watching the video thinking, throw him into the wall and start slamming his head into sheetrock until we find out where the kid is, right? That's in my sinfulness. That's what I was thinking. Tell me what you like to do. Talked about camping. Talked about his family. Talked about his mother. Talked about difficulty in his life. And Mark would weave the conversation in a very calm, incredible way, building rapport very quickly, building relationship very quickly, getting to a place where they would get to the topic of concern. And as soon as they got to the topic of concern to talk about where the child was, he would start to back off. And I, I watched Mark back off and go around, let's talk about this, let's talk about that, I love this area. And they talked in the room, and I sat there outside the room from 8 o'clock at night till 5 o'clock in the morning. What was Mark doing? Mark had built rapport in the most incredible way. He had built relationship in the most counterintuitive, strange way. It was not what I was feeling he should do. It was not the reaction that he wanted to have. But he withheld the reaction that he wanted to have, and he spent the time needed to build a relational bridge strong enough to carry the weight of the information that had to go from the suspect's head out of his mouth into our ears so we knew what to do. And that took a totally different approach than what any of us wanted, but it's what needed to happen. At about 6 o'clock in the morning, we went for a drive and the suspect confessed. We found, were able to recover the little girl and bring the case to recover her remains and bring the case to a conclusion and get an answer. Totally counterintuitive. Totally different than how you want to react. Totally different than what you think should happen. There's Jesus. And he's addressing the, this principle that's in the Old Testament. He's addressing the law of the talent or the law of the claw. We find it in Leviticus. You find it in Old Testament writings. You find it all over ancient Semitic writing in the law of, or is it the law of Hermione? Code of Hammurabi. Code of Hammurabi, ancient Semitic literature, and in the Old Testament, you find this law that Jesus is addressing. And he's saying, yeah, this is in Leviticus, and I'm going to teach you about it. An eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. What a just, what a just system, really. And what Leviticus is talking about is the way that the judges were supposed to behave in reference to executing judgment on somebody. And, and, and honestly, if you think about it deeply, it's, it's very fair. If someone takes my eye, it would be unfair for me to in turn take two of theirs, right? The severity of the punishment is supposed to be exactly what the severity of the crime is. And here we see Jesus addressing the law of the talent and the justice system. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The punishment is supposed to equal the severity. And, and then Jesus 
boils it right down into the heart of the Christian. And he says, listen, and, and here you have to understand this. Jesus isn't trying to abolish the system, the, the way judges are supposed to execute um, their sentences upon people who commit a crime. Yes, the punishment should fit the crime. The severity should fit the punishment. Jesus isn't abolishing that. But what Jesus is saying is, yes, that's true, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. But here's what you guys have been doing. You've been taking that passage about the system and about a way a judge is supposed to behave, and you've been making it an excuse for you as a Christian to execute personal vendettas upon people. And that is not what this is about. Your heart is a Christian. Your posture is a Christian. It should be different. Someone hurts you. You've heard it was said, eye for eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, don't resist the one who's evil. Do not resist the one who's evil, but if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other. What? It's so counterintuitive. Why would I, why would I behave in such a way? Doesn't it say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? If someone slaps me, I get to slap them back. And take it even further. What Jesus is saying, you think of a right-handed guy. How do you slap someone on the right cheek? Jesus is depicting a backhand. Which is, which is in his ancient world, it's an insult. Someone insults you. Someone slanders you. Someone speaks evil against you. Someone says something that's dishonest about you. Turn to him the other cheek. Wow. In light of the gospel, you want to live out the law in the way that God intended that's pleasing to him as you worship him with your life because of what he's done for you. Here's what I'm saying. You don't need to slap him back. You don't need to defend yourself. Man, isn't that counterintuitive? Does that not, does that not hit your... Yourself in a way that says, ah, I don't know. I was really mad when I hashtagged and posted that really clever political meme that explained my point that was going to convince everybody that I'm right. And someone wrote something below it that really ticked me off and insulted my meme. Right? I'm ready to, come on. This is me. I'm talking to myself. Someone insulted what I think about something. Someone spoke dishonestly about me at work. Someone is, 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 is out to get me. And Jesus says, give them the other cheek. How difficult. Look at Romans 12. Romans 12, 18 through 21. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by, doing, for by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome... Do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. How remarkable. The posture of our heart 
living out and pleasing to God. We'll turn the other cheek. Really, what we're doing is, is we're to lead vindication. Listen to this. We are to lead vindication to the hands of the one, unlike us, who's perfect in his vindication. Let me say that again. We are to lead vindication to the hands of the one who, unlike us, is perfect in his vindication. Amen? Of our hearts. Love our enemies. Twist it around about going to get you next week or in two weeks. Counterintuitive. Someone insults you. Lead the vindication to the one who's perfect at doing it. Justice is his. Yes, we're to pursue justice. personally insulted, when we're personally offended, when we're personally attacked, the posture of our heart is to respond with love, to turn the other cheek, and to allow the one who's perfect at bringing about justice to do that on our behalf. Jesus, Jesus, how I thank you. Right? So good to sing. Are you singing that in your heart when someone insults you? Is that the worship song of your life when someone smacks you in the cheek? Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. How I trust you. You're perfect at vindication. You are perfect at justice in the posture of my heart. Oh, what a people we would be we live these things out. We exist to glorify God, right? Isn't that what we say in our mission statement? How do we glorify God with our lives? Jesus tells us. We declare in our catechism, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. I'm God. Am I? If I'm God, then I'm looking to God's agenda for my life. What's the goal and the mission of your life? To prove to other people that you're right? Or to glorify God? In response to the gospel in your life, what is the pursuit of your life as you worship Him? Not with songs on Sunday morning, but with the way that you live. How do you worship Him with your life? If that's your goal, is to worship God with your life because of what He's done for you, guess what Jesus says? What's pleasing to God is that when someone comes against you, when someone insults you, when someone attacks you, you turn the other cheek and you let God do the justice stuff. Wow. Look what else he says in verse 40 and 41. And if anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. And what does he say? What's he talking about? I think what we see here is we see not this idea that you're not allowed to defend yourself at all, but your posture is to be that of, 
I'm ready and willing to give more than even what's being taken from me. The posture of my heart is I'm trusting God and, and I am prone to giving. I'm not going to get walked over. I'm not a doormat. There's other scriptures that speak to our posture and the way that we are at times to stand up for what's right. But the posture of our heart in response to a personal attack is I'm, my posture is ready to give even more, to give my coat if they're going to take my tunic. That's what I'm ready to do. That's what I'm prepared to do. That's the posture of my heart. I, I, I'm not going to uh, allow injustice. I can still stand up and speak truth, and, and the Bible speaks to that. I can still defend myself at times. And so you have to read this in the context of all of Scripture and what he's getting at. But what Jesus is saying here is, listen, when someone's coming after you, the posture of your heart, it, the, the intuitive thing to do would be to react, would be to fight, would be to hit back, would be to pursue another eye if they take your eye. But what I'm saying here is the posture of your heart is to be totally counterintuitive. To take the approach of, of, I'm ready to give even more. I'm ready to allow God to move into this situation, and I'm not going to fill the space with my own agenda, my own aggression. I'm going to allow God to move in this, and I'm going to be ready to give even more than what's being taken from me. Is that totally different than how we're prone to living? What Jesus is speaking to According to Roman law, authorities, according to Roman law, authorities had a right to compel you to transport goods up to the length of one mile without any compensation. They didn't have any truck drivers doing this. If they had to get goods around within the old Roman Empire, they could say, listen, buddy, you're taking this stuff on that. And you're not getting compensation for it. So here you go. So the injustice of this law that Jesus is dealing with. You mean the Romans can compel us to do something we don't want to do at our own expense, at our own cost, to transport their goods a mile, and I don't have to get compensated for it? And Jesus says, yep, and guess what I want you to do? Take it two. Take it two miles. Here's the posture of your heart as you worship me. They force you to go a mile. Your posture is, I'll take it two miles. Oh, what a people we would be. We live this out in our lives. How we would be those who worship and glorify our God. If we demonstrated this in our lives, in the way that Jesus said. Jesus says, if you're afflicted with this unjust oppression, Take it the extra mile. How could he ask me to do that? Hey guys, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. The goal and the mission of my life is not my own personal agenda. The goal and the mission of my life is not to be right. The goal and the mission of my life is to serve and worship Jesus and to glorify God. You mean I don't say anything? I don't defend myself? Isaiah 53, 7. Prophesying about Jesus. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was a lamb that was slaughtered. 
before the tears stop my eyes. You open my eyes. We have a different mission, don't we? In fact, on Matthew 27, there's many missions. He stands before Pilate, falsely accused. Crucify him. Pilate's like, look, I can give you somebody. This guy didn't do anything wrong. But it's up to you. Who do you want me to give? Jesus or Barabbas? Aaron? Or the Holy Man? Goes through a totally illegal, unjust trial. Not a word to his defense. He opened not his mouth. He had a mission. He had a mission. Listen, he couldn't save himself. And save you and me at the same time. So he said nothing. And he went to the cross. And the only one who didn't deserve to be punished for our sin was the one who was being punished for our sin. The one who fulfilled the law. He lived the law perfectly. The spotless lamb before the slaughter. He says no word. Many of us, if we were to, to be held accountable for our own sin, would be brought into the courtroom of God and, and be accused. And there's nothing we could say in our own defense. We're guilty. The one who could have shouted from the rooftops, who could have given the most brilliant opening statement, the most brilliant closing, pound the table, yell to the jury, I'm innocent, I've done nothing wrong. He's the only one who could have made that appeal in the courtroom of God. No higher court that there is. And he said nothing in his own defense. And he was punished. The wrath of God for sin from Adam to the end of the world saved up for all of those who sinned. Poured out God's devastating wrath upon him. And he hung on the cross becoming the most despicable sight in the history of the world. Not saying a word. He had a mission. To rescue us. To be the lamb that was slain. To, to pay for sin. A high cost. And we today, in Christ, stand in the highest court that exists. And we as Romans declared us justified. We stand sinful. Without a defense, declared not guilty. Not guilty. That means you get uncuffed, you walk out of the courtroom, and those accusations can never be brought against you again. We've said before, when the accuser comes, when the person jeers at you and says, look at how bad you are, look at how much you've messed up, look at your sinfulness. You can stand up and say, I've been acquitted, I'm not guilty. What higher judge could they go to to accuse you? He's declared you not guilty. We live in the freedom of that, amen, because Jesus didn't speak a word. And now in response to a free gift 
of salvation. We live a life of gratefulness and worship, demonstrating the glory of God. And here's what Jesus declares to us. Hey, listen, sinner, who's been declared not guilty because of what I did. When someone comes against you, what are you offended about? As my old youth pastor used to say, you can't be personally offended if you're personally dead. I've died to myself. What are you offended about? God's in charge of this stuff. You don't need to fight. Listen, this is what this, this is getting at in the heart of Christians. Stop going after personal vendettas. This isn't about the justice system where, where an eye for an eye means that, that punishment is doled, doled out equally. That's not being abolished. That's still true. But in your personal life, you are not able to go after personal revenge, personal vendettas. Stop misusing the law to justify your personal vendetta. That's not what that's talking about. What Jesus is saying is, yeah, eye for an eye is true. But listen, when it comes to you, if someone accuses you and slaps you in the face, someone insults you, you trust me. You give them the other cheek. Demonstrate the glory of God in your grace and in your mercy and in your posture of love. You don't have to be defensive. Folks, personal vendettas, personal offense, the notion towards revenge and I'm going to make things right are destroying our world. Do you hear me? It is destroying our culture. It is destroying our world. It is destroying our relationships. And it's been doing it since the beginning. Whether it's Northern Ireland or, or, or the United States in 2020, Northern Ireland in the 90s, it doesn't matter. You hurt me, you killed my dad, I'm killing your dad. You hurt me, I'm hurting you. You took this from me, I'm taking that from you. And it perpetuates into violence upon violence upon violence that grows into a place where people hate each other and they don't even know why anymore. And Jesus is saying, let them hit you, don't hit them back. Because I've taken care of it. And I'm in charge of justice. And walk through this life with grace and live peaceably. As much as it depends on you, Romans 12, 18. Sometimes it doesn't depend on you. Sometimes people take it in their own hands and you can't. But to the degree it depends on you, live peaceably with others. Why? Because Jesus has paid for it and taken care of it. And the posture of your heart is to turn the other cheek, to give more than what's taken, to walk that extra mile with somebody. Why? Because Jesus did that for you while you were a sinner and not even looking for him. Amen? This is how he's called us to live. This is not easy. Am I right? But I'm telling you, oh, what a people we would be. If we responded to the gospel and lived like this. What a people we would be if we turned the other cheek when insulted. What a people we would be if we opened up our resources and our hearts and we gave to others freely. What a people we would be if when someone in anger and vengeance and intent to do evil comes to take something from you, and instead of fighting back, you respond respond by giving them more. Oh, what a people we would be is if when someone comes to you and forces you to take something for them a mile, you say, you know what? I'll take it two miles. Listen, 
I'm not saying there's not a lot of work to do. I'm not saying that there's not things we should stand up for and fight for. But in the midst of our reactions in life, personally and otherwise, Jesus tells us this should be the posture of your heart in your response to the gospel. This is I delight in the law of the Lord with my life. This is what's pleasing to God. I'm going to close with this. I know I've said it before, but I want to to attach this to something in your life, okay? Psalm 1 is is the thesis of the Psalter. It is what explains the whole psalm. And a lot of the law of the Lord pertains to gospel. If you're someone who says, I delight in the law of the Lord, therefore I'm going to live in the way that Jesus is describing that the law pleases God in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm recognizing something. That this posture of life, this way to live that's pleasing to God because I love His law and I delight in Him, is going to be at personal cost. It is. It's going to be at personal cost. This will cost you temporal happiness. This will cost you temporal possessions as you give freely to others. This will cost you temporal satisfaction in making your point and being right. So what happens to that person who experiences those losses because they delight in the law of the Lord? Guess what happens? You're a tree. You're a tree with roots that go deep down underneath into living water. And when life stinks and it's hard and you're living in a way that glorifies God and it costs you something, you say, I don't feel temporally happy right now. But deep down inside, regardless of the seasons of life, how scorching hot it is or blistering winter it is, whatever subjectively is going on around outside of you, deep down underneath, you experience joy. Instead of temporal happiness. Your leaf doesn't wither. Because you're not attached to being right. Or having something. Or getting paid. Or feeling better in the moment. Your leaf never withers. Because you're attached to what matters. Underneath. Deep down. The law of the Lord. Because you delight in it. That's your goal. That's your mission. That's what you love. Guess what? If that's the truth, no matter what happens, nothing can touch you. Amen? They could take everything away. You could lose people. You could lose family members, spouses, tragedy, difficulty. The world's upside down. Everybody's locked in their houses. Everything's going crazy. Deep down inside, underneath, I'm delighting in the law of the Lord. And at the end of the day, He's in charge. And I experience a joy that goes beyond my ability to understand in the midst of temporal loss. You hear me? what Jesus is getting at. You want to live a life of real joy, real purpose, real value. Make God happy. Delight in His law and live it out as you worship Him with your life. That means sometimes when you get smacked, you give Him the other cheek. That means you give more than taken. That means when someone's in need, you, at personal sacrifice, your own resource, and maybe a nice steak dinner or a hotel or a big vacation, you scrap that and you give it away to someone who needs it. This is how He's calling us to live. Oh, what a people we would be if we lived this out in worship to Him. Amen?